0: Nicola Dean and this is Safeguarding Matters with the Ancraft Trust. Hello I'm Laura Thorpe and I am a Safeguarding
1: Adults in Sport and Activity Manager here at the Ancraft Trust. Today I'm with Uh, Lisa Curtis and I'm a Safeguarding Adults at Risk Manager at the Ancraft Trust.
0: Thank you and we're going to be talking about the MCA today so first thing
1: maybe in a nutshell what do we think the MCA does? Well I'm going to kick off there Laura by calling it the Mental Capacity Act because I think that sometimes we use a lot of abbreviations and not everybody might know what they are. So the Mental Capacity Act is there to protect us all, so whether we've got capacity or or we haven't Um, and it's almost sort of like got two competing components in it um, and those relate to keeping people safe (laughs) and at the same time empowering people as well. So if we think about um, the title, the Mental Capacity Act, it's actually just about decision-making, and I think we're in danger of making it far too complicated Mm -hmm. sometimes. But if we think about the Mental Capacity Act in terms of whether a person can make a decision and understand the decision that they've made and the consequences Mm -hmm. of it... So um, it's not a blanket
0: statement of capacity or no capacity, it is decision specific, isn't it? It's one decision at a time. Yeah, it's
1: one decision at a time. It's time and decision specific. Mm -hmm. So I would never expect to see uh, written down anywhere or to hear anybody say, this person lacks capacity, Mm -hmm. because I would just say, well, in what? Mm -hmm. Because to me it is about, and it is, the law is, it is time Mm -hmm. and decision specific. I think, as well, in terms of that, that even if a person can't make um, a big decision, so if we think about finances, a person might not be able to manage their full bank account, but they might, and uh, so may lack capacity to manage their um, bank account, mm-hmm. but they may have capacity to manage small amounts of money, so mm-hmm. they may be able to manage their money on a weekly basis if somebody provides the support with a um, the bigger sort of aspect of it so i think just because um a person may lack capacity in a certain area we mustn't assume that they lack capacity in all aspects of that like the finances okay so while we're talking about who has capacity and who hasn't
0: got capacity who can actually assess capacity who who is able to do that
1: well i think that's That's an interesting conversation because I think sometimes we think that assessing capacity is a professional's Mm -hmm. role, Mm -hmm. but actually on a day-to-day basis, for a start, we all make lots of decisions without even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, We make hundreds of decisions a day. And and actually, in many of the roles that we are in, when we are um, supporting somebody, whether they are... um, in a, a care home, or whether we're, we're um, working with somebody in a leisure centre, or at the doctors, it could be anywhere really. Um, often we will make decisions without even thinking twice about it because it's part of our normal day to day. You know, we wouldn't be assessing a person's capacity to ask them if they want sugar in their tea. No. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't mm-hmm. expect to have a full assessment on, on all of that, but we would uh, expect that. Um, depending where we are, that, that, that bits of information that we know about people become really important mm-hmm. and the level of detail in which we keep them will depend on the role that we're in. Oh, yeah. So on a day-to-day basis, the Mental Capacity Act allows us to make day-to-day decisions. And the way I look at it is the more complex a decision, the more likely... That may escalate in terms of who needs to be involved. Of course, yeah. yeah. So other professionals, if it was medical, you know, obviously
0: medical advice, etc. Mm.
1: Yes, yes. So, in some situations, a decision may be taken out of our hands. So, if if it was a, a due to an accident and um, the person needed urgent urgent treatment, then the the medic would make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, that was needed, unless there was something more complicated. Um, as an example, a person who is a Jehovah's witness may not want a blood transfusion. So, just as an example, that might be more complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually, on a day to day decision in an emergency, the decision would, would be made. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and other people would be involved. And, and where there are time to involve other people, in in big decisions then that that would be done we don't always have to rush to make a decision yeah so they may actually regain their own capacity and be able to make that choice themselves I I think yes we need to consider that Mm -hmm. I I think as well that um, we need to um, rethink this sometimes and we need to remember that we always assume a person has got capacity so we, we, our starting block would always be, mm-hmm. let's talk to this person about this decision that needs to be made. OK. Brilliant. As we're talking about that, shall we talk about the five core principles?
0: That's, that was the first one there. So the five core principles are at the core of the MCA, really,
1: aren't they? They they are, yes. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, in my experience, um, this is where people can start to get in, into a model mm-hmm. with the Mental Capacity Act. But actually... Um, I always try and encourage people to remember them in order because they're in an order for a specific Mm -hmm. reason. So number one is always starting with assuming that the person's got capacity. Number two really is making sure that the person's got all of the information that they need to be able to make that decision in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where we can spend more time, really, if I'm honest, Mm -hmm. because sometimes people will rush towards making a decision where often... It's not an urgent situation. We could think and and be quite creative in the way we provide people with information. And sometimes that might involve um, something visual, going to visit somewhere, especially if a person is is frightened of um, going to the doctors or the dentist, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people are frightened of going to the dentist, and and sometimes doing those visits first, um, trying to find ways of explaining to a person what will happen. Um it, it's like any decision that we need to make, really. We would try and find out more information mm-hmm. about it if we didn't know the immediate answer. Of course. So um, sometimes we might have to do that for the person, you know, help them find the resources they need. Yes, yeah. So we're, we're giving them every opportunity to be able to understand and mm-hmm. be involved in that decision-making. Um, so principle three is the right to make an unwise decision. Um, this is where we start to get into areas which... Can get quite tricky, I think, really, mm-hmm. um, because we need to be able to demonstrate that it is an unwise decision that the person is making, and that's based on the fact that they understand the information that's been given to them. Mm-hmm. They can retain that information, um, they can uh, use that information to inform their decision, and they can tell you about it. Mm-hmm. So that's how you would know if a person had c- capacity, basically, so that they can use retain. Mm-hmm discuss the information with you and and make a decision based on on that. If any of those elements are missing, then the person will be deemed to have capacity in that specific decision that needs to be made. Mm -hmm. So if a person um, has got capacity and they're making an unwise decision, I think we then need to think about, okay, do we need to do something else to provide either It might be that that person is doing something that is risky and and that they do understand the consequences, but it might be that we think, well, do we need to provide additional information Mm -hmm. around safety? Do we need to make sure that they um, um, have got... As an example, if they're travelling late at night, have they got the means to contact a person? Do they know what time the last bus is? Do they know where the taxi rank is? Mm -hmm. So sometimes just because a person's making an unwise decision and they've got the capacity to... Um, it doesn't mean to say that there isn't any other action that mm-hmm. should follow. It, it could be that we're just sort of looking at other risks and seeing whether we can support the person with that risk, if they want the support, remembering this is an adult. But moving on, if, it is, if the person does lack capacity, then we would be looking at thinking about making a decision on behalf of that person. And there's a process for that mm-hmm. called the best interest um, decision. So, just to recap there, because um, I know I've been talking a lot. So, we've got the first one, which is assume capacity. The second one, which is provide information. The third one, which is the right to make an unwise decision. And now we're talking about the fourth one, which is best interest decision. Mm -hmm. So... The Mental Capacity Act, which I should have said at the beginning, actually works as a useful framework, but it has a code of practice to it, which is almost like a work booklet, if you like. And the code of practice, it doesn't have a best interest definition, because what's in my best interest wouldn't be the same as yours, Laura, as an example, but it does tell us that we can't. Um, but there is a checklist which mm-hmm. tells us that we can't discriminate um, about age, behaviour, illness, etc. So it clearly tells us um, if we're making a best interest, what kind of, um, what areas we need to be quite secure in in, in terms of making sure that the decision is, is not biased. Mm-hmm. Um, we also need to think about who um, we consult with mm-hmm. as well. And just because the person has been deemed to lack capacity. It doesn't mean to say they can't still be involved in the, in the discussion, they should mm-hmm. still be there if they want to be,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. um, remembering that, that the person's got a choice here.
0: And an important element as well is the documenting it, isn't it, and how you've come to that decision on that person's behalf.
1: Yes, absolutely. So you, ideally there would be one person usually chairing the meeting, if, if you like. Um, And they would be the Mm decision-maker. Now, that title in itself can be a bit confusing Mm -hmm. to people. And I've been in situations before where parents have come along and they've made a natural assumption that they are the decision-maker, whereas actually the decision-maker is often somebody who is um, not attached Mm -hmm. to the the situation. Yes, Mm the objective, that's that's the word. Um, And... Part of the process of best interest is to really demonstrate that you have considered everybody's viewpoint, every person's viewpoint in terms of what they believe would be in the best interests of that individual. The person usually involved, um, the people usually involved would know the person well and we have to keep in our mind that the decision that we're, we're going to arrive at is going to represent a decision that that person would have made themselves if they could have made yeah. it. Yeah. So it is better if, in, in many circumstances, if, the, if they know the individual. Obviously, when we're talking about medical situations, sometimes we have to listen to the, the medics mm-hmm. and things as well. But there might still be a viewpoint of other people. Um, so within the process of the best interest meeting, we would be looking at um, looking at all the pros and cons of mm-hmm. the decision. So, if we're looking at, as an example, moving house, um, there might be people around the, the table um, looking at why they think it would be a good idea for the person to move to a different location or a different, um, to, from a house to a bungalow, as an example, whereas other people may think that it's not a good idea because uh, they've got to get used to a new community and might lose some connection with their friends, etc. And at the end of the, of the meeting, um, the decision maker needs to weigh up all of the pros and cons and arrive at a decision. And this is where the documentation is is really important because we need to be able to demonstrate that we have taken all all of the discussion on board and the best interest approach has been reasonable and it's been fair and we're arriving at a decision that on the whole people feel would be in the best interest of that person. Um, so, then the last core principle would link quite well into what you've just said there, so... Yeah, it would, yes. Um, so we need to make sure that when we arrive at the the, 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 the decision that we're about to make, I was actually say to people, let's just stop and think for a moment and make sure that we are making a decision which is the least restrictive of the person's human rights. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be proportionate Mm -hmm. to the decision and any risks that are associated with that. So one of the things I will say to people is that um, just because we're in this process, this best interest process, it doesn't mean to say we can make any decision Mm -hmm. we like. it's um, It's not giving us the green light to walk all over a person's human rights, we've still got to make the best decision with with that person's needs in mind and it needs to be proportionate. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think sometimes people find that principle quite difficult to
0: understand but I think really it's about thinking about really do we need to go this far and or can Mm -hmm. we take some of these steps away, how can we keep the person involved, how can Mm. we listen to what they want. Mm. Mm. So five core principles um if we think about another thing about the mca is that it helps people plan for the future Mm. and it's given people that the empowerment of for maybe a time when they might lack capacity Mm. so one thing that was brought in was a lasting power of attorney wasn't it so do you mind explaining what that is well
1: um yes i mean i always think this when i talk about the lasting power of attorney is is that um you and i today laura we could go out and we could um, go and make a lasting power of attorney for a time when we um, lack capacity and every time I say it I keep thinking I need to think about this yeah, and do it too. And, and plan for a time when mm-hmm. I may lack capacity. Um, some people may have heard of lasting power of attorneys, mm-hmm. there may in fact be one. Mm-hmm. Um, before the lasting power of attorneys they were called enduring power of attorneys so people may still have an enduring power of attorney. Um, But the Lasting Power of Attorneys was something that were put in as a more strengthened process Mm. actually with the Mental Capacity Act because Enduring Power of Attorneys didn't have a robust enough sort of framework Mm -hmm. around it, whereas now the Lasting Power of Attorneys, um, there there is a register for um, a Lasting Power of attorney, and that's monitored by the Office of Public Guardianship. So it's there as a process so that we can plan now. Yeah, I think
0: one of the probably most common times in society at the moment is if unfortunately uh, loved ones diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's of of some kind, when we know that actually in the future their decision-making ability will be taken Mm -hmm. away. Um, So a common might be that somebody is their lasting power of attorney for their grandmother or their mother around. Mm -hmm. There's two separate sections, isn't there? So finances and welfare. Yes, that's right. um, And decisions can be made for that person when they're unable to make it themselves. Mm -hmm. Another part of it is about making advanced decisions to refuse treatment as well, isn't it? Yes, yes, Mm
1: yes. Yeah.
0: So legally you can decide that I do not want to be resuscitated, for example, or just it's the right to refuse any treatment that you might need?
1: Yes, it's, it's the right to refuse but not, you can't make a decision that's going to bring about your, your death as mm-hmm. such. Um, but yes, you could <coughs> say under these circumstances I do not want to be resuscitated or under these circumstances I do not want to receive antibiotics and that, mm-hmm. and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. so the, the last thing I thought I would say is who
0: needs to work within the MCA then who needs to be aware of these different things that we've been yeah. discussing?
1: I, I think that the thing with the Mental Capacity Act is that it's it's really far reaching, mm. it, it, it touches loads and loads of people in, in many ways because of, of the complexities of it or as it's seen, the complexities of it um It hasn't really realised its true potential, Mm -hmm. I don't think. So, um, if you think about who needs to understand capacity, you and I. Yeah. It's 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 people in in GP surgery, Mm -hmm. the person who turns up with the ambulance. Um, person in the care home, the person in, in in a shop mm-hmm. may, may think that a person isn't quite understanding their, their finances. Mm-hmm. Um, they may think that somebody is, is slightly confused. I mean, it's far-reaching. It applies yeah. to, to, to everybody, yes. really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, the thing about the Mental Capacity Act is that if we embrace it more, we would understand um, how it can work for us when we've got capacity, but also how it's there to protect our, our loved ones, really, to enable them to be able to be involved in the decision-making process and, and actually for decisions not to be taken away from them if they can actually make them. Brilliant. OK, I think that we'll leave that there. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about our work, check out our website, andcrafttrust.org, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at and craft trust